0: Coming up on the Keto Camp podcast, we welcome Dr. Casey Means.
1: In terms of all of us trying to like check our glucose and become really metabolically healthy all we've got really is okay if I'm below hundred in the morning I'm okay and if I'm after a huge carb-rich meal under 140 after two hours I'm fine I would argue that these are drastically too lenient and if that's what we're focusing on and orienting around people will not achieve optimal health
0: Hey Keto Camper, hope you are doing incredible today. Hope this episode finds you in gratitude and in love. And when I say love, loving yourself and loving the world. I cannot wait to share with you Dr. Casey Means, who's a Stanford trained physician and co-founder of Levels Health, which is a startup focusing on maximizing diet and exercise through continuous blood glucose monitoring. And that's what today's episode is all about the cgm you might have heard of a continuous glucose monitor we're going to break down everything you want to learn about it i have been using one for the last three weeks and i share my experience with it on this episode and i get some coaching from casey because i saw some interesting things looking at my blood glucose the last three weeks (laughs) every few hours or so i became a little obsessed with it it's such a cool little device uh, such an all great biohacking device. I asked Dr. Casey questions like, why did my glucose go up uh, almost 15 points midway through a workout and then drop those 15 points towards the end of my workout. I asked her about my glucose dropping to the low 60s after having just protein from sheep yogurt and bone broth powder. And she gives me coaching on that. We discuss the benefits of wearing a CGM. How can you get a CGM? how CGMs fit into the keto lifestyle. I asked her about the Dawn effect, which is having higher blood sugar levels first thing in the morning. Is this normal? Is this healthy? She'll break that all down for you. Then we get into the normal glucose ranges versus the optimal ranges that we want to hit. She has a great perspective and research on specific numbers and ranges we want to get into with our blood glucose so if you're hitting those numbers know that you're aging gracefully and the foods you're eating is doing you well so this is a great discussion because we talk about insulin we talk about glucose we talk about levels health which you'll hear more about and foods you know that work with your physiology how do you know even if it's keto foods if it works for your physiology so we get into all of that you're gonna love Dr. Casey's energy. I sure did. And our energies fed off of each other for a fantastic discussion. So grab a pen and paper. You're going to love this interview. Just to give you a heads up, Levels Health is doing a pre launch right now, and they have a 26,000 person wait list to access their Levels software and service. Uh, for the listeners to the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out a skip the line link. So yes, you might still need to wait 8 to 12 weeks for shipment due to high demand to this early access program. However, you skipped the line of 26,000 people for being a listener to the Keto Camp podcast. We wanted to reward you. So you could find that link in the notes of this podcast. It's also levels.link slash Keto Camp. Just go to the link. If you want to see that and click that it could be found in the notes of this podcast i want to take a minute here to get to the apple podcast review of the day this is a five-star review from lrmi20 titled fabulous i've been fasting for a couple of years and i'm always looking for helpful updated information to help me on my journey this podcast is fabulous great information and guest well lr kudos to you for practicing fasting for a couple of years and still getting information that helps you along the way we are releasing cutting-edge research with amazing guests i'm glad you're listening thank you so much for taking that time to leave the show a rating and review it it really helps the show grow it is the oxygen the lifeline for podcasts so thank you so much if you haven't left the keto camp podcast a rating and review as of yet please do so by going to Apple Podcast and leaving that honest rating and review. And when you do so, take a screenshot and send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com with your shipping address in the United States. And when I see it, I will sign a paperback copy of my best-selling fasting book and send it out to you as a thank you. So please leave the show a rating review, take that screenshot, send it to support at ketocamp.com. If you wanna take a screenshot of this episode on your phone, and post that on Instagram. I love it when you Keto Campers do that. Send me a tag when you do that at TheBenazade and shoot Dr. Casey a tag at Dr. Casey's Kitchen. If you're struggling to find the right foods on your ketogenic lifestyle, I highly recommend you check out Kettle and Fire's new lineup of keto soups. They are delicious, they live up to my high standards of quality ingredients, and they'll help you accelerate your ketogenic results. Visit kettleandfire.com ketocamp and use the coupon code KETOCAMP at checkout for a 15% off. That is kettleandfire.com ketocamp. Okay, let's geek out together on continuous glucose monitoring with Dr. Casey. All right, keto campers. I am so excited to geek out with you with a brilliant health practitioner, Dr. Casey Means. Dr. Casey Means, a Stanford-trained physician turned digital health entrepreneur. She's the co-founder of Levels Health, which is a startup focusing on maximizing diet and exercise through continuous blood glucose monitoring. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today, how to use a CGM machine, continuous glucose monitor, to see what foods are working for you, what keto, which keto foods are working for you or not. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Casey Means. Hey, Dr. Casey.
1: Hey, Ben. Great to see you.
0: Great to see you too. We were just having an offline discussion and geeking out a little bit. So I'm glad that uh, I'm great to, grateful to connect with you. Thank you for joining me today.
1: You as well. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So how does a surgeon <laughs> go from being a surgeon and being in that conventional space to doing what you're doing today?
1: Great question. So it was a big transition out of the operating room to the functional medicine world and then ultimately the digital health world. And it it honestly really started way back when I was a college student. So it was kind of a long journey. I'll, I'll give you kind of the Cliff Notes version. But but basically, you know, I started college at Stanford right after the Human Genome Project had wrapped up and uh, digital therapeutics and direct-to-consumer genetic testing was really coming online. The personalized health revolution was really starting, and it was very, very exciting. And so that was sort of the ecosystem with which I entered the biomedical sciences and sort of the very beginnings of my healthcare career. And with all this sort of stuff in the water about the the Human Genome Project and 23andMe and personalized genetics, there really was this overarching sense to me that healthcare is really about Humans being this unique biochemically individual blueprint are our genes, but the difference between the expression of health or disease really has to do with, with how those genes are Are actually expressed. And that variable that controls that is really comes down to exposures, and that is diet and lifestyle. So it's what we're eating, it's uh, what we're thinking, how we're stressing, how we're sleeping, how we're moving, what environmental toxins we're exposed to, and all those things go into our body as molecular information that tells our genes what to do. So in that sense, it's, it's really an empowering view of human health, because even though we are born with this genome, which is, you know, this, this written code that we can't do a whole lot about the expression of that is, has a, we have a lot of control over, over that. And, and then since that time, a lot more has come out about that sort of modifiable aspect of genetics through the whole epigenetics revolution, which is how the, how the genome is folded. And we know that you know, certain genes can essentially fold on themselves and make it more difficult for them to be expressed, but through epigenetics and, and histone modification, and that our behaviors, our diet, our lifestyle, the way we manage stress, all these things have a huge impact on epigenetics and the folding of the genome. So it's really interesting. So, so that was kind of What I started in my healthcare, you know, being embedded in. And I worked at 23andMe, and I was a teaching assistant for a pharmacogenomics class. And I, you know, just really loved that. And so then, flash forward, I go to medical school. And medical school is actually a very different approach than this. The way that conventional medicine is sort of taught and practiced is kind of much more of a pattern recognition process. So the way it works is you go in and you see a patient, and you ask them a bunch of questions, and you get lab tests, and you do an exam. And those end up becoming this collection of signs and symptoms, signs being objective findings, like lab tests and exam findings and imaging, and symptoms being more subjective things that you learned about the patient. And the way medicine works is, you know, you, you say, okay, this patient's got this collection of signs and this collection of symptoms. And if it adds up you basically get to label a diagnosis on it and a diagnosis is like a label a term that that encompasses the collection of signs and symptoms and then as a doctor you can kind of turn around and you can look at your your book of of which medicines and which surgeries essentially are used to treat that diagnosis and so in that sense it's it's quite reflexive it's very much about pattern recognition and it doesn't really take into account on the day-to-day practice a lot of these modifiable aspects of health and disease so this is very kind of interesting because now in our country you know we're dealing with this chronic disease epidemic we're dealing with you know 88% of Americans having insulin resistance or metabolic dysfunction, 74% of Americans being overweight or obese, 128 million Americans having prediabetes or diabetes. You know, these are just a couple of the the massive amount of chronic disease that we're seeing and that that are touching almost every American. And we know that these diseases are rooted directly in dietary and lifestyle choices over the years. And yet, um, not necessarily something that's really factoring into our day-to-day practice um, or the nuances of our practice. And the average medical student only gets about four hours of nutrition training in their entire medical school career, even though nutrition is arguably the highest value lowest hanging fruit intervention for really reversing disease. So that was kind of medical school and some observations I had there and then moved on and went into the surgical world. And so I trained as in residency as a head and neck surgeon, which is an ear, nose and throat surgeon. And given the realities of the healthcare system that I was seeing, I as you know, this young, sprightly, you know, 26 year old was thinking like, well, what is my goal? I want to help people, I want to make people well. And surgery seemed to me to be this Within the confines of the system, like the most efficient way to do that. Cause you take someone to the operating room, you know, they have pus in their sinus. And at the end of the day, you've punched a hole in the sinus, you've sucked the pus out and that you've, you know, quote unquote fixed them. And so that felt really appealing to me um, as someone who wanted to do good for patients. And so practicing surgery for four or five years. And ultimately, I kind of was stepping back and saying, you know, almost every condition I'm treating in the operating room here as an ear, nose, and throat doctor is fundamentally an inflammatory condition. Mm -hmm. So sinusitis is inflammation of the sinuses. When the nasal tissue gets inflamed, it kind of closes the hole that drains the sinuses and then pus builds up. I was treating tons of chronic ear disease, like middle ear infections that kids are always getting. And that fundamentally is the tube that drains the ear into the nose. The eustachian tube gets inflammation, clogs up, you get pus built up in the ear. And then you punch a hole in the eardrum and you put an ear tube in, you suck the pus out and that's fixing it. And I was seeing a lot of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is really rising in rates, especially in women in our country. And this is inflammation of the thyroid. It's an autoimmune attack of the thyroid. And then I was also seeing a lot of cancer which we're more and more understanding as an inflammatory and and disease. you know, you're we're seeing a lot of therapies come online that actually harness the immune system to actually fight cancers like cancer vaccines. So it's fundamentally a, a problem with how the immune system is responding to these abnormal cells in the body. And then, Lastly, I've seen tons of like vocal cord granulomas and masses on the vocal cords that lead to hoarseness and breathing problems. And these are ultimately inflammatory masses. So I'm sitting there saying, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Everything's inflammatory, prescribing a lot of steroids, which are anti-inflammatory medications, doing a lot of surgery. But it seems a little illogical that I would use surgery, which is like a mechanical physical tool to fix what is fundamentally like a complex physiologic problem that is ultimately related to how the immune system is sensing threat in the body. Inflammation fundamentally, is the immune system saying there is a threat, and we have to activate in order to fight that threat. So it became very imperative to me to think, what is this threat? And why is everyone inflamed? And this was just in my little ENT world. But you know, looking more broadly across chronic disease, a lot of chronic diseases we're facing are fundamentally inflammatory in nature, mm. obesity, heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, et cetera. And so became very, very important to me to think more about that issue. And when I that led me really on a journey um that kind of led directly to diet and lifestyle, you know, these are the things, the choices we're making in terms of what we put in our body, what we expose our two selves to day to day ultimately are, I think, triggering a lot of the chronic inflammation that we're seeing. Um, Our bodies are exposed to whole new breeds of foods that we were, our bodies throughout history were really never meant to be exposed to. Refined and processed grains, refined and processed sugars, you know, processed vegetable oils that are highly oxidized. All these things that you can imagine go into the body. Your body hasn't seen these things in, in these quantities ever throughout human history. And so the immune system's like, whoa, threat. This is not good. Same is true of environmental chemicals, environmental toxins and pollutants. There is a class of compound called POPs, which are persistent organic pollutants, which are all over our environment and cause metabolic dysfunction and inflammation. Then we've got chronic sleep deprivation. We're sleeping way less than we used to, which is to the body is registered as threat that the body's like, why are you not sleeping? You know, this is not something must be wrong. And so it activates and then you've got sedentary behavior, which triggers the immune system. And we've got chronic low-grade stressors. You know, every time you get an email or a ping on your phone, the body's like, ooh, what's happening? Maybe little little threat. So so our bodies, our poorer bodies, our poor mitochondria are just like, there is so much going on. And I think we're very activated from our immune system. And I so anyways, ultimately decided, okay, if I really want to get to the root cause of some of these ENT conditions, I really need to be helping patients reverse this inflammation and kind of really get fundamentally healthy. So ultimately got additional training in functional medicine through the Institute for Functional Medicine, learned a lot about this root cause approach to healthcare. And, you know, instead of thinking about things as these sort of separate entities in the body, like, oh, these are ear, nose and throat conditions. And these are metabolic conditions. And these are heart conditions. And these are GI conditions. Instead, thinking about what are what's the physiology that actually links a lot of these diseases. And, and so that really led me down the road of really trying to understand metabolic dysfunction. Because uh, when you look at how diseases are connected in the body, especially our major chronic diseases, it really leads you right back to metabolic dysfunction, and insulin resistance, which are also drivers of inflammation. And so Opened up a private practice, a functional medicine practice, where I was really trying to help people understand these root causes, really trying to optimize metabolic function for my patients. Um, You know, started putting continuous glucose monitors on a lot of patients to help them have real-time clarity into how food and lifestyle choices were affecting their glucose levels in real time, which I found to be a really interesting and engaging sort of behavior change tool for people. And then so did that for a while and realized, okay, so ultimately, for me to make a real impact on patients lives, like people really have to be every single day making consistent choices that improve their health, they have to be making good choices in relation to food, exercise, sleep, stress, you know, exposures. And so really, this comes down to inspiring people to make good choices and make behavior change choices every single day. And to me, that really lends well to digital health solutions, because, you know, we have our phones on us every single day, we don't have our doctors with us every single day. And so in order to make sustainable, you know, choices, and we make hundreds, if not thousands of choices every day about all these different things, to have a tool with you that can kind of help you make those choices in a smart way for your body, I thought was really where we needed to go. And doctors really need to be adopting and engaging with technology so that patients can make those sustainable choices that ultimately lead to the expression of health. And essentially functional physiology. And so, so that's how I kind of moved from surgery to ultimately functional medicine and metabolic focus. And then really started doing more in the digital health world, realizing that, you know, doctors have to engage in this if we want to scale our efforts to help the most people and have the most effective impact on behavior change.
0: Yeah, what a journey you've had so far. Uh, I love that you, you know, you recognize that you were being. Reactive, and then you became now proactive. And I always give that analogy of the old the whack-a-mole game at the arcade where a, a mole pops up and a symptom, whatever it is. So you perform surgery or you give a, a pill or even a supplement and then another, another mole pops up and you do the same thing. And shouldn't we be asking, why are these moles popping up? And that's what you said. Why are these moles popping up? And it's metabolic dysfunction. It's inflammation. All roads lead to inflammation. And there's different roads that are stemmed from inflammation, but inflammation is linked to just about every single disease out there. So I acknowledge you, Casey, for seeing that and then also making that pivot, which I imagine, and and maybe you could share, how difficult was it for you to actually make that pivot because you were in this conventional world and now you're looking and thinking outside of the box and you might've had some peers that might've not have liked that. So how was that pivot for you?
1: Yeah, by the time I ultimately made the decision to sort of put my scalpel down and leave the operating room, it actually was a really easy decision because Ultimately, I had taken a lot of time to reflect on like, what is my North Star? What is my purpose here as a physician? And my purpose is to help the most people as I possibly can achieve true, real foundational health, health and to thrive and to maximize their human potential. And when it became clear to me, I mean, it honestly comes down to a spreadsheet. It's like, I could invest my time in a tool, a digital health tool that has the power to meaningfully impact millions of people through principles that I've thought a lot about and that are well established in the research, you know, or I could continue helping, you know, 20 to 30 patients a week in my functional medicine private practice. And, you know, which is very, very useful. But ultimately, I'm, you know, a lot of the principles are are very foundational and can be scaled if we merge that clinical insight with digital tools. And from moving away from surgery, you know, the same thing was true. My my North Star was to help people foundationally get healthy and thrive. And I think surgery can absolutely help do that in acute situations where people have an acute injury like breaking a bone or getting in a car accident and you need to fix something and get them back on track but for chronic conditions that are based in inflammation i don't see surgery playing a role like it does today where it is something we're very quick to engage in and so just you know as I, once i had that philosophical shift i it was really not that difficult to to shift gears and a big part of this was really getting involved in the network and systems biology movement and and really diving into that research. I don't think that's a term that that many people are familiar with, but ultimately, I think this this really is going to be the future of medicine. and and what this is 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 exactly what you were talking about with the whack-a-mole. So right now we see all diseases as isolated silos. you know, we see depression as its unique disease, obesity, you know, benign prostatic hypertrophy and prostate cancer you know, hypertension, diabetes. These are all separate things that we see as silos. Or, And then, you know, let's say um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, totally separate. No one would really think they're like the same thing. And so and we treat them as such, we have a different medication for each of those diseases. But in network biology, because of the proteomics revolution and whole genome sequencing, we now can understand what are the common core pathways and genetic upregulation, and physiology that actually links all of these into a web as opposed to silos it is so much more efficient to treat the links between diseases where where one intervention can have multifarious effects versus playing whack-a-mole like you said with all these different diseases which is really a never-ending cycle Mm -hmm. because you're not actually reversing physiology you're just managing symptoms and so from an efficiency standpoint from you know rational biochemistry perspective Treating those links is where I think the future of medicine needs to go, especially with the huge challenges we're facing right now. And I think I I just finished Ben Vickman's new book, Why We Get Sick. And I I think he does probably the best job of describing this network of diseases of anyone I've ever seen, because he really talks about how that link between so many of the things we're seeing today that seems so disparate, you know, skin tags, infertility, erectile dysfunction, hypertension heart failure, cancer seem different, but actually, fundamentally, this is a problem of insulin resistance. And so that's the web that that links these things. And so I think once you kind of wrapped your your head around that and really believe it based on, you know, a lot of late nights reading research literature, and like, it's not that hard to walk away, because ultimately, you just believe a different, you know, you're, you're moving in a different direction of how you want to help people. And certainly don't regret any of my time there because it led me to to understand this problem in a way that gives me really that fire to want to approach it a little bit differently.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it does. So let's talk about why you decided to go. I mean, you kind of just explained it. All roads are kind of leading to inflammation, insulin resistance, and high glucose levels. So you developed uh, a software, you co-founded levels, and you utilize a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor. So for somebody listening or watching here on YouTube, and they have no idea what a CGM is, this is the first time they've ever heard about it. Could you explain what it is?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So a continuous glucose monitor is this tiny little quarter sized wearable sensor that you stick to the back of your upper arm. And it's got a tiny little hair like filament that goes under the skin. And that little filament is actually checking your glucose every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. And you wear this sensor just like you would wear a Fitbit that measures your heart rate. And it's transmitting a glucose value to your phone every 15 minutes without you having to do really anything. And so what you end up with is this incredible biometric data of what's going on inside your body and your response to food continuously. What's really cool about glucose is that it changes rapidly after an input. So you eat and your glucose, if it's going to change, it's likely going to change within like 30 minutes to an hour. So you're getting this really closed loop, like one-to-one feedback between what you're eating and what's happening to your blood glucose. So this is a technology that is has been around for actually a while, like over a decade, and it's FDA approved for management of type one and type two diabetes. So right now it's got a clinical use for these populations and has been a game changer because formerly these individuals were pricking their fingers, you know, three to five times a day after meals to see what's happening and mostly from, you know, medication management. And this tool allowed them to stop having to prick their fingers and is just a lot more comfortable. It's completely painless. And it's just such a more robust data stream. But what's interesting about you know metabolic disease is that this is these are insulin resistance and metabolic disease. These are diseases that don't just turn on like a light switch when you get a diagnosis of diabetes. These are diseases that start decades before the actual diagnosis and are essentially the result of repeated regular insults to your metabolic system through these hundreds of daily choices that we make every single day so it became sort of like well how can we use this incredible technology that gives this data stream to help people far before their diagnosis refine their diets and lifestyles so that they never get to that stage they never develop insulin resistance and it's you know you could say like oh why don't people just eat low carb you know and and then they won't get glucose spikes and then this will never happen but you know that unfortunately, this we're at monumental you know, proportions of of this epidemic in terms of metabolic dysfunction, and I think people do really benefit from having tools that give them some accountability and clarity into what's going on and keep them on track. But what's most interesting is that no two people respond to carbs exactly the same. So there's tons of of variability between how like you or I would respond to the exact same carb load. We could both eat a banana. And I could go to a glucose level of 150 milligrams per deciliter and you could go to 90 milligrams per deciliter. And so a banana is probably a much better choice for you and much worse choice for me. I'm almost certainly going to secrete more insulin from my pancreas when I eat that banana. That insulin is gonna be floating through my bloodstream. And if that happens repeatedly, is ultimately gonna to lead to my cells becoming possibly insulin resistant and lead me down the path towards Something like type two diabetes or, or pre diabetes. So because of that, that biochemical individuality, which is relatively a new concept. Formerly, we kind of thought like everyone responds the same, and that's why we have these indices like the glycemic index chart, right. which yeah. basically says like if you and I both eat a banana, we're going to have the same glycemic impact from that food. But more recent research. Um, most notably out of the Weissman Institute in Israel, which was published in Cell in 2015, which was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. They put continuous glucose monitors on a huge population of healthy individuals and saw that basically people are all over the place with how they respond to a standardized carb load. And so for us to really stay on track in the face of a food culture that has a lot of glucose triggering foods, I think it's really important to have some more clarity and data into that. So,
0: yeah, it's it's super cool because I've been using one. You you all sent me one uh, a few weeks ago. I think I've been using it now for about almost three weeks, and uh, it's been really awesome to see the data right when it happens. Right, I've never used a CGM before. I've I've used you know finger pricks and I've seen kind of what happens, but I was not pricking my finger all day long. With with this, I have the CGM. If you're watching on uh, on YouTube, I actually have it right here. Yeah, on the back of my shoulder here, or, or arm, I should say. And it's very simple. I mean, I just put my phone here and it'll give me a reading. And it's continuously monitoring. But I found that blackberries actually uh, jacked up my, my, my blood sugars, right? And, you, and I would think, you know, black, uh, blackberries, they're low in that glycemic index. They're low in sugar for a fruit. But for me, I don't do well with it. I do much better with blueberries, right? So just knowing that data, I can understand that I'm going to have more blueberries and less blackberries. I wanna take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking, I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number 4. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. So I want to actually get some coaching from you, Casey, because I had... A few different scenarios that I want to kind of get your feedback on when it came to monitoring my glucose via the continuous glucose monitor. Number one was, uh, I remember I was in a fasted state, and typically my fasting glucose is in the 80s, mid-80s or so. And uh, I finished up you know, doing some work, and I was going to go into a meeting, and I decided I wanted to break my fast. This was around 1 p.m. or 12.50 p.m. And I had about four ounces of uh, sheep's milk yogurt, and I added some bone broth powder to it. So it was all protein, a little bit of some fat. And then I tested this. I put my phone there, and I saw my reading. And it actually dropped my glucose from 88 to the lower 60s. (laughs) It was like 61. So tell me what happened there.
1: That is very interesting. And how quickly did that happen?
0: 30 minutes right after
1: 30 minutes and you weren't doing any exercise or anything.
0: Yeah, I was actually sitting right here at my desk on a, on a call and I just decided to do it in the middle of the call. And I, saw, I was like, well, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, that's fascinating. So I, I this is a speculation. I'm going to speculate yeah, here. I don't speculate. know for sure. But it's so normal physiology, when glucose goes into the bloodstream, the pancreas is going to release insulin to basically tell the cells to take up glucose, to get it out of the bloodstream so that it can either be used by the mitochondria to generate cellular energy, ATP, or if there's excess for it to be stored. And it will be can be turned into either stored chains of glucose, which is called glycogen, which is like short-term energy storage, which goes into the liver or the muscles, or it can be converted into fat, like triglycerides, and then go into the fat cells to be stored for long-term energy storage. That's so kind of normal. But other things can stimulate insulin as well, like protein. And so protein to some extent does cause an insulin response it it tells your body you're in a fed state and so that kind of transmits to the pancreas to release insulin perhaps because there's an expectation of glucose coming or something like that but perhaps what happened was that you ate this is essentially zero sugar food, the sheep's milk, yogurt, and I don't know how much of the residual sugars there were in there, but I imagine very, very low. And then you added bone broth powder, which gives you extra protein um, and probably some fat, I would imagine. Yeah.
0: I had a little bit of some fat, mostly protein. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so you may have had essentially no glucose come in, but straight protein come in and have a little bit of an insulin surge. So you actually took up some of your circulating glucose that was already in the bloodstream, which is very tightly controlled by the body. And that led to a little bit of a dip and you didn't essentially replace it with any exogenous food-based glucose. So, that's a possibility, kind of an essentially an insulin response in the absence of glucose.
0: Mm, yeah, that's kind of my, where my line of thinking was too. And I, I felt totally fine. I didn't feel hypoglycemic, but it was just interesting data. I wouldn't have expected that. Second thing that happened was I went to go work out in the fastest state, which I usually do. I work out and I train in the fastest state. And I started off my workout. Glucose was in, before I started my workout, I checked my glucose was like in 94, I think it was and then i did some some warming up i did some strength training probably about 15 minutes of some weight lifting and then my glucose went up it went up to 108 and then halfway through the workout i finished the strength training and then i did some sprints on my rooftop here and then it dropped down to like 82 So what will happen there?
1: (laughs) This is so interesting. And I commend you for being in the fasted workout camp because this is heretical to a lot of people who come from the carb loading philosophy of getting the most out of your workouts. But a lot of evidence to support that actually exercising a fasted state is really good for the body and for our metabolic pathways. So what likely happened to you there with the weightlifting is that Essentially the body's fairly simple. When the body thinks that there's a threat or we are under stress and need energy to essentially run from something like like think, you know, old days, the example of being chased by a lion. Mm-hmm. If you think that you need to be, essentially be run from a lion, your muscles are going to need very quick sugar to work. And so the body has this mechanism where if you think you're about to be chased by something and you need energy for your muscles, you're going to dump your stored glucose from your liver, which was stored as chains of glucose called glycogen. You're going to dump it out really fast and flood the bloodstream with that to feed your muscles. And so we often will see a glucose rise, even in a fasted state, because even in a fasted state, you still have some stored glycogen in your liver, unless you've, you've been fasting for a really long time, in which you can fully deplete your glycogen, we store about 2000 calories of sugar of glucose as glycogen. So you can imagine you could burn through that through an extended fast, but overnight, you're probably not going to burn through all of that. So you start lifting weights, or you start a high intensity interval training workout, and that sends to your body the signal, Oh, man, we need sugar, we're about to like run from something, this is a stressful situation, and your liver immediately basically dumps out a bunch of sugar. The the muscles don't tend to need as much as what the liver dumps out, it overcompensates. And so that's why you see a rise. Then you'll often see a dip after that, because the, the muscles become very insulin sensitive during a workout, they're hungry for that glucose, they want it. And so you are essentially going to have maybe an exaggerated response of like taking a lot of that up as the workout winds down. And you can see increased insulin sensitivity in the muscles immediately after a workout, you know, and end up, you know, in the in the days following. So that's sort of, that's kind of what was happening there.
0: So fascinating. It's, it's really cool to just see that in real time, what's happening. And, you know, the next thing is, what role does cortisol play here, right? Doesn't also cortisol have an effect because cortisol goes up, glucose has tends to follow cortisol. So that also played into the role of me uh, exercising the fasted state, right?
1: That's exactly what happened. So that's the language with which the exercise told your liver to Got do it. that. So catecholamine release, cortisol release, those things are going to tell your body that it's time to dump some glucose. And So a couple other sort of interesting things there. One is the idea of stress and stress hormones. This is also another very important topic, which is that our perception of stress in our day-to-day lives has a huge impact on our glucose levels. So you can just have a stressful conversation or respond to a stressful email or, you know, anything like that, and it can actually raise your glucose on its own. And we've seen this a lot, actually, just in our in our customers. And I've seen it in myself. I remember like the first podcast I recorded ever, my glucose totally went up fasted, <laughs> recording it. And it was just like, Oh, this is so interesting. This is must have been a, a cortisol response. And I think it's really good to be aware of that. And I think that's a really interesting part of this biofeedback aspect of CGM. Because sometimes it's very difficult to know, actually, whether we're stressed or not. And I think a lot of us deny stress, but our bodies you cannot hide stress from your body, even if your brain thinks that you're not stressed. And I have so many patients who say, Oh, I'm never stressed, you know, but, but stress from a physiological level, like it's, it's, it's there in in almost all of us. And so I think it's really neat to be able to actually almost have this accountability check of like, no, like something was going on. And there are things that we can do. Like, what if, you know, you could quit insert a little meditation into that part of your day when you know that you're getting a little glucose surge from stress, or do other tactics that are going to lower your overall cortisol response. And, you know, something that we're exploring and are going to be developing is the integration of the CGM data stream with with heart rate variability data streams. So heart rate variability is essentially looking at the beat to beat variability between our heartbeats. So you can check your heart rate, which is how many beats you have per minute. But then you can also look at how much time is in between each heartbeat and actually when there's more variability between the beat to beat time that's actually associated with a better stress response more adaptable more flexible flexibility in the body is typically always a good thing yeah. <laughs> and so you know, high hrv is positive and so it's going to be very interesting to see how hrv and these stress-related glucose responses correlate and i think together could really help move people into more of a sense of somatic awareness and more body awareness about what's actually happening, especially for these subjective experiences like stress that are sometimes really hard to pin down and to know when they're happening.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well said. It's super cool to just see this and talk about this. I want to briefly take a break here and let you know about my favorite coffee in the world. Look, I'm a coffee snob for good reasons, because the right coffee source can be healing to the body, can reduce inflammation, and result in weight loss. The wrong coffee beans could actually increase inflammation, cause weight loss resistance, and sabotage your keto results. There was a recent study in the Canadian Journal of Physiology and Pharmacology that showed caffeine intake from coffee beans could actually increase fatty acid production and help the participants produce more ketones. Most coffee beans are loaded with pesticides and contaminants and even mold. This is why I love my friends over at Purity Coffee. Hands down the best coffee beans I have ever tried. I have my delicious cup of Purity Coffee in the morning with some grass-fed ghee and MCT oil, and it turns my brain right on and helps my body produce ketones. Purity Coffee is organic pesticide Free. These beans are specialty grade, and you could get this coffee shipped straight to your door in nitrogen flushed bags, roastery fresh. Since you are a listener to the Keto Camp podcast, we have worked out an exclusive coupon code for you to check out Purity Coffee. Head over to www.ketocampcoffee.com. Use Keto Camp at checkout to get 10% off your order. Again, that is www.ketocampcoffee.com. Use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout for 10% off your bag of coffee beans. Remember, camp is spelled with a k. Okay, the next thing is this. You know, the keto campers, they're they're checking their glucose, their ketones. I get a lot of messages Hey, Ben, uh, in the morning when I wake up, I had, you know, my glucose is uh, 105 or 98. Why is it so high in the morning? And then it kind of drops an hour later. And I explained to them, it's something called the dawn phenomenon, and it's a natural occurrence. So explain what's happening there. And then we'll transition to what are the optimal ranges to look for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. The dawn effect is this phenomenon that you can see where basically first thing in the morning, glucose just rises on its own, totally in a fasted state. And it can rise like five points, 20 points. And in people with metabolic diseases like type one or type two diabetes, it can be very, very high, like can go up 50 points. So the physiology behind this is that in in order to wake up from sleep, our body releases cortisol and other hormones to essentially rouse us, to get us to wake up. And those are gonna have an impact on the things we just talked about on the liver and and mobilizing glucose. Your body is preparing to need to be alert, stand up, use your muscles again. And so that's what's happening with the Dawn effect. It's more pronounced in someone who has diabetes or or insulin resistance, because if you are insulin resistant, then you're gonna have more of this um, inability to get that glucose quickly into the cells. And so you're gonna see more of that rise. The evidence suggests that that a very healthy person with, you know, perfect metabolic health should probably not have much of a Dawn effect at all. And the more Dawn effect you have is actually probably more moving on that metabolic spectrum. So, you know, in someone who has perfect insulin sensitivity, the cortisol, you know, and the stress hormones are gonna release that glucose, but you're immediately going to compensate by taking that up into your cells. And so So it's totally normal to not see a dawn effect and to just have it completely flatline in the morning or like a two to three point raise when you wake up.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about what are the normal blood glucose ranges to be in, uh, fasting and then postprandial, and what are the optimal ranges?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to talk about normal, this is really coming from, I'm going to put air quotes around normal because this is what like the... American Diabetic Association and sort of governing bodies. They've reviewed the literature and they've come up with these criteria for categories of what is normal as a way to categorize people and as a way to sort of efficiently group who is most likely in certain certain categories. But I think it's important to remember before talking about these categories of like normal pre-diabetic and diabetic, that these are population-based statistics and they tell you essentially at a population level, what level of risk you're at for different things. And so they don't actually tell us what to shoot for. So in our current system right now, if you have a fasting glucose, meaning a glucose first thing in the morning after not having consumed any calories for eight hours of below 100, you're considered normal, normal metabolic health. If you are between 100 and 125, you're pre-diabetic. And if you're 126 milligrams per deciliter above, you're considered diabetic. And then there's other tools that we use to diagnose people for these conditions and so one is called an oral glucose tolerance test where an individual take either 50 or 75 grams of a glucose drink usually called glucola it's really gross and you you chug it and then it sounds nasty it is nasty yeah (laughs) and you'll check your finger prick glucose or your blood glucose from a vein one hour and two hours after that and so if you go up, uh, your glucose goes up after that glucose drink. And if after two hours, you're below 140 milligrams per deciliter, you're considered non-diabetic. So that's sort of the the lump for that. And then the third test is hemoglobin A1c, which is a blood test that looks at a three-month average of blood glucose by looking at how much glucose is stuck to red blood cells. And if you're below 5.7, you're considered normal. 5.7% of your blood cells having sugar attached to them glycated hemoglobin. So that's all we've got in terms of all of us trying to like check our glucose and become really metabolically healthy. All we've got really is okay, if I'm below 100 in the morning, I'm okay. And if I'm after a huge carb rich meal under 140 after two hours, I'm fine. I would argue that these are drastically too lenient. And if that's what we're focusing on and orienting around, People will not achieve optimal health. Those are way, way too lax. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the research literature, even within the normal range, as you go up from, let's say, a fasting glucose in the 70s up to 99, which is still considered normal, risk of nearly all diseases increase. So there was one study done in the New England Journal of Medicine, which looked at healthy young men. And they were non-diabetic, so all the amount of them had a fasting glucose, less than 100. And they broke them up into quartiles of fasting glucose. The lowest quartile was somewhere between like 70 and 78, and then like 78 and 85, 85 and 92, 92 to 100. I don't think those ranges are exactly accurate, but it was like four quartiles within normal. And what they saw is that as fasting glucose increased throughout that range risk of developing type two diabetes skyrocket Mm. huge increase in odds ratio i think it was eight um, in the highest quartile compared to the lowest so you're much more likely to develop diabetes if you have a higher fasting glucose than a lower fasting glucose even if your doctor says you're totally normal you're normal You're, you're below 100 the same is true of stroke and heart disease it's essentially that exponential increase in cardiovascular disease that happens with metabolic dysfunction insulin resistance does not start right at 100 it starts well below 100 so you, even if you're at you know the mid 90s you're still on that upward curve for developing those diseases so i would argue you know we need to be achieving the lowest quartile of these things so i would say based on my review of the literature i would suggest a healthy fasting glucose to shoot for between 72 and 85 and that would based on the the data that I've looked at, be in the lower risk categories within the normal range for developing future disease. Then from a post-meal standpoint, and and I say 72 is the lower limit for that and not 70 because there actually is some research that shows that the lower your fasting glucose is, risk for sort of mortality actually goes up. And I think this needs to be studied more because I don't, I'm not, fully convinced of this because I think there are people who are on ketogenic diets who are getting very adequate fuel from other sources to their brain and other parts of their body who may have a very, very low fasting glucose. And I'm not confident that that's associated with increased risk. But that needs to be studied. We need to better understand what's optimal for a non-diabetic person. But because of that research, I would put for now the lower limit that I would suggest is maybe 72. Not that you should eat to get maybe like higher, but just from the research we have now. So there needs to be more research done in this. For post-meal glucose levels. So right now, all we've got is that we should shoot for less than 142 hours after a meal, which to me is crazy. There's about six or seven studies that have taken healthy populations, put CGMs on them and looked at what their 24 hour glucose levels are. So just totally observational studies. In those studies, the average healthy person spends 90% of their day between a glucose level of of 70 and 120. So the vast majority of our day, we should probably be spending between 70 and 120. And, And if you look at even some of the studies that have more lenient sort of maybe not so healthy populations, but still technically non-diabetic. There's another study that showed that people spent 93% of the day between 70 and 140, but almost no one really ever goes above 140. So the idea that we should shoot for that after two hours of a meal just seems crazy to me. From my perspective, we should really never be going out of the 70 to 120 range. And I think we should probably be shooting for you know, pre-meal glucose levels somewhere in the 80s and 90s just sort of resting glucose throughout the day and maybe going up a maximum of 15 milligrams per deciliter after a meal. And the reason for this really, it's not just about the glucose, but it's about the insulin. So every time you spike your glucose, you're going to release insulin from the pancreas. And when you do that to a high degree, a high glucose spike, high insulin spike, you are exposing all the cells in your body to this big load of insulin. And like you talked about extensively on your episode with Ben Bickman, insulin has hundreds, if not thousands of of roles within the body. And when the body's exposed to it over long periods of time, it leads to disease and it makes our body more insulin resistant, which makes our pancreas have to pump out more insulin at baseline. And so we get to this hyperinsulinemic state. So you want to avoid that by avoiding spikes, frequent spikes and avoiding high spikes. And The second thing is that high glucose alone in its own right causes problems independent of insulin. So high glucose leads to inflammation. It leads to oxidative stress, so too many free radicals in the body. And it leads to glycation, which is glucose sticking to proteins and fats and other things in the body and causing dysfunction. So you want to avoid inflammation, oxidative stress, and glycation, and you want to avoid hyperinsulinemia. And so for all those reasons, I think really shooting for You know, much more rolling hills on the glucose and not peaks and valleys. And then, two other small things I will say is that when you do spike your glucose very, very high and have this big insulin surge, the body essentially is sucking all that glucose up really fast because you have all this insulin. And you often see this sharp spike and a big drop. And sometimes you can overshoot on the drop and you'll actually go lower than what you started at. And that's called reactive hypoglycemia, it's an overcompensation of insulin to a high spike. And that state, that reactive hypoglycemia is often associated with brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, and sort of that post meal, like energy slump that a lot of people feel. And so, you know, if you're experiencing a lot of variability throughout your day, in your sort of mood, your energy, your focus, I think it'd be really the lowest hanging fruit I would look at is whether you're spiking and crashing all the time. And you can really avoid that by making these much more gentle rises and falls. And what's cool is that there's there's so much that we can do in terms of modulating our diet and lifestyle to achieve more gentle rises and fall. It doesn't necessarily mean eliminating all your favorite foods. It means pairing foods appropriately, timing foods appropriately, Mm -hmm. pairing foods with exercise in the right way, making sure... We're not eating in a super stressed out state and making sure we're getting really good sleep. All those things feed into our glucose response. So we can really like artfully modulate the diet to get lower spikes. And that's essentially what my company, the software we've developed helps people do is learn how to do that.
0: Yeah, the software is awesome because you could uh, put the 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 range of where you want your glucose to be. You want a, that targeted range, I think you call it. So I actually put that for myself, 70 to 120. So I'm glad that that's what you recommended because that's exactly what I put for my range. So uh, I want to first ask you, where can we get a CGM? You said right now it's just for type one and type two diabetics, and it's not really outside of that. So how can we get our hands on one of these?
1: Yeah. So. At this point, a lot of primary care doctors aren't really familiar with this use case of sort of health optimization and performance optimization and dietary personalization with a CGM. And so if an average person who does not have diabetes walks in and talks to their doctor, their doctor might just be like, no, this is not for you. This is for people with diabetes. And so, so something that we did early on in our company was we set up a telemedicine physician network of partner physicians who, when you essentially... Uh, become a Levels customer, you get a telemedicine consultation with a physician in your state, which is all done over the internet, and they evaluate you to make sure that you are safe to use a CGM. And if They do, and they do write a prescription for a continuous glucose monitor that's sent to our partner uh, pharmacy, which fulfills the prescription for these sensors and sends them to our customer's house. So they end up getting a box with two 14-day continuous glucose monitors. So the two sensors together make up a 28-day program, which we call our metabolic awareness program. And then onboarding instructions of how to get access to the app, which essentially takes this data stream and helps people really parse out all these different drivers of glycemic function and how to modulate and understand the diet and lifestyle factors to create really optimal glucose responses. So, so that's something that we provide as a company is this access to a telemedicine network for uh, continuous glucose on our prescriptions.
0: So I know you have a waiting list right now. So where can they go and apply and, and get added to that waiting list to, so they could get one of these eventually?
1: Yeah, so we're we are an early company. We've been around for about a year. We are pre-full launch since so we're in a closed beta program. So right now we the best thing to do is to go to our website, which is levelshealth.com and sign up for the wait list. And we're moving through this group of people, um, trying to get access as quickly as possible we can for everyone and anticipate a full launch later this year.
0: And I was going to say that, you know, if you're concerned about the method of applying the CGM. From my experience, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to feel. I've, you know, I-, I saw some videos like my my friend, Mike Mutzel had a video and he said he felt like a pinch when he put it on. So I was expecting a pinch, but honestly, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel anything when I put it on. I, I was actually surprised that it was on me. I just uh, pressed it on there. It's very easy to do. And I didn't feel anything. And I have it right here. And as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, you have this little cool uh, tape. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it a tape, but it's a cool branding thing you have on there and it really covers it so you don't rip it off like I accidentally did the first time. So I learned from my mistake and um, it, it's been on there working really well. Tamika Terry wants to know if this, you'll be able to purchase this with your FSA card. I don't know what that is. But do you know what that is, Katie? Yeah, okay. it's like
1: a health savings account. Um, essentially pre-tax money and these th- th- those funds are eligible to buy the product.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Again, that's levelshealth.com. We're going to put that in the notes of this podcast and the YouTube video down below. Uh, Amanda out in the UK says, so if your blood sugar has dropped after eating or drinking, does that suggest what you consumed raise your insulin?
1: It's a great question. You know, that is one possibility. There's a couple other possibilities that are worth noting. So, a little bit depends on what you've done recently from a physical activity perspective. Because if you're eating something low carb, and your muscles are particularly sensitized right then to take up glucose, you could just be actually taking up glucose into your muscles and seeing a drop in circulating glucose. And while you're eating, you're not necessarily you're if you're eating like a very low carb meal, not actually replacing that glucose. So it could have to do with physical activity. There's a couple other interesting scenarios. One is with alcohol. So alcohol often makes people's glucose levels lower as well. And that's independent of insulin. So people will often find if they have like a glass of red wine with a dinner that usually causes a blood glucose rise, it will actually cause less of a, a blood glucose rise. But that's from a totally different mechanism. And that happens because alcohol inhibits the part of the liver that essentially makes new glucose. There's a process called gluconeogenesis, which is where you make glucose from other substrates in the body. And that's one mechanism our body has to just make sure that we always have some glucose in the blood because we would die if we didn't have any glucose in the blood. And so your body keeps things really tight and has a lot of redundant pathways. And gluconeogenesis is one of them. And alcohol blocks that. So let's say you eat a totally you know no carb meal and you have alcohol you could very well see your glucose drop because this kind of this little faucet that's always going to sort of like replace some glucose in the bloodstream has been impaired so it's something that actually people who are on a keto diet who or who are fasting really need to be careful of you, you do not want to be drinking alcohol when you're on an extended fast or you know super in ketosis because you may block one of the only pathways you have at that point towards replenishing glucose in the blood. So there have been reports of people, you know, having comas and things like that because of of drinking in a fasted state. So something important to think about. So there's a lot of different variables and then I think one worth mentioning is that this could also just be from sensor error. So these are these are technologies that do the very accurate technology. I mean it's used for medication dosing in people with diabetes and it's a life-saving you know device and so it's very very accurate, but there are differences between what you pick up on your sensor and what might be in the blood. Very small differences, but it could be possible that you're picking up some of that you know variability in the sensor and at lower values these sensors actually tend to be a little bit a little bit less accurate And that is probably because there's less concentration of glucose in the blood at lower values. And so the enzyme on the little sensor that's actually measuring glucose has less to kind of work with. And so the sensors are getting more and more accurate at lower values as time goes on. But just another thing like worth mentioning that it may be physiology, but it may also be, you know, the hardware itself. And so if you're ever worried about low glucose, I think it's always good to finger prick and just sort of like double check if you're super concerned about that.
0: Great answer. You know, when when do you think there's going to be a continuous ketone monitor?
1: Man, I'm waiting. I'm very excited. There are a lot of really smart groups out there who are working on multi-analyte sensors. And I mean, I think that's really, that is the future. Being able to know your ketones in relation to your glucose, and then one day maybe a continuous insulin sensor. Oh
0: my gosh, I can't wait.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I think that a continuous glucose monitor gets us at least 75% of the way there but having some of those other analytes would be fantastic you know having continuous inflammation monitoring and things like that but but the ketone thing is great because ultimately one of the big goals of using a technology like this is that if if I can keep my glucose spikes low I can assume that I'm keeping my insulin exposure low and I am regaining insulin sensitivity each day that I put in reps to keep my glucose stable, I am essentially building insulin sensitivity. And I'm also keeping my insulin exposure low, which means and I know I'm know you're, you know, keto camp, people know this, and and you talk about this a lot on, on different podcasts, but for fat to be used as fuel in the body, and for us to use fat as an energy source and be metabolically flexible, insulin has to be low. And as you use those fat burning pathways more and more, they get stronger, and you become more efficient at using them. And so I really like to think of this as like, you know, by having good days on CGM, you are getting, it's just like working out, you are getting reps in to build your metabolic fitness. And when you're building your metabolic fitness, it means that you're keeping your insulin stable, and you are tapping into fat burning pathways more effectively. And then in different times of energy substrate availability, like a fasted state, or you're exercising in a, you know, low glucose environment, or you are doing keto. You know that you're going to be able to flip flop back and forth between burning glucose and burning fat. Um, and the average person walking around in the United States, I don't think has a, the great uh, the capability of doing that very efficiently because we have been so exposed to such readily accessible food sources that spike glucose. You know, refined carbohydrates, refined sugar at just astronomical levels in our foods that we haven't really needed to tap into our fat burning sources cuz insulin is always there to basically utilize glucose for fuel. So, so it's a fun way to kind of get your reps in and every day, you know, you get a kind of green circle on on our app is like a day that you can kind of assume that you have, you know, put in a good metabolic flexibility rep. So, That's
0: awesome. Yeah, so if you're somebody who gets really inspired and motivated by those numbers, this could be something that's really really cool tool to hold you accountable. So Catherine wants to know if insurance covers the, if you're not diabetic or pre-diabetic.
1: Right now it doesn't. Yeah. So insurance does not cover this for off-label uses, which is really unfortunate. A big part of our effort moving forward is clinical research that's going to hopefully show the efficacy of this for a non-diabetic population and also that this is a really cost effective tool for keeping people healthy. So our mission is to reverse the trend of metabolic dysfunction in the United States. And part of that is going to be producing the research that shows that this is effective. And ultimately, as we move towards more of a value based care in our healthcare system, where we're trying where we're incentivized to keep people healthy, I think this is going to emerge as a really big tool, but it's it's going to take research and cost efficacy data showing that for payers to really understand the value of this. So it's um, very much on our roadmap to help move that ball forward so that everyone can have access to this. At the current price point of buying out of the pocket, it's not accessible to everyone, um, but it should be. And our goal is to make it get to a price point where it can be.
0: Yeah. So Catherine, they're working on it uh, right now. The answer is no, but that's subject to change Uh, David, who is in my, he's an amazing member here. He's um, type one diabetic. Here's what he wrote. After becoming fat adapted, I no longer have convulsions associated with extreme lows. I now find that my blood sugar of 45 to 60 seems okay. Is it better for ketosis and A1C to operate at these levels or would be lowering basal insulin be better? Is there an optimal blood sugar and or basal rate?
1: Oof, great question, David. And Also, congratulations on your journey and, you know, gaining fat adaptation capabilities. And, you know, I am going to defer on this one because I think this is getting very much into the realm of medical, and it would probably be a better question for for chatting offline with with your doctor. But I will say it is not well known whether living... And a blood glucose of 45 to 60 is, is optimal for health. I don't have an answer to that question. And that's a question that I want answered because we see a lot of people, including myself, going into the 50s and 60s, not infrequently. And it's it, I don't have a clear answer on whether that is safe or healthy, but... We do know from large population studies that many, many healthy individuals wearing CGM will drop into the 50s and 60s during a 24-hour period. That's actually totally normal on CGM. But what what the health outcomes of that are, it is not known. So, And I think it makes sense because non-diabetic individuals or lower glucose values have not been studied as much because they're not necessarily considered pathologic. And, and we've been dealing more with the, the issue of high glucose. And so, yeah, ultimately, don't have a clear answer for that.
0: Okay, that, yeah, I um, align with your answer, by the way. So Dr. Casey, this has been such a fun, fascinating interview, and uh, I can't wait to do it again and geek out some more because uh, more things are going to arise and more questions will come from me. So we'll do this again. Where is the best place besides levelshealth.com if you want to get added to the wait list? Where else can I go check out some of your work?
1: Yeah, check out at Unlock Levels on Instagram and Twitter. And especially for the keto folks, check out levelshealth.com slash blog because we've had some people use CGM who have we've interviewed for the blog and sort of showing how to use CGM to enhance keto and what I would call keto 2.0, which is glucose-informed keto diets. There's some really interesting stories on there of people following a strict keto diet who actually really liberalized their keto diet from using CGM and learning that certain foods that were off limits actually didn't spike their glucose or kick them out of ketosis. So check that out. LevelsHealth.com slash blog at Unlock Levels for Twitter and Instagram. And for me personally, you can find me at, at Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Twitter and Instagram. So Dr. Casey's Kitchen. And I'm actually vegan and fairly high carb in my diet. So I write a lot about basically metabolic awareness and CGM results on a very, very personalized plant-based diet and how I've used CGM to craft a plant-based high carb diet that essentially keeps my glucose completely flat all the time. And I think that's a whole area of, the plant-based world and veganism—that's going to be exciting. So, vegan 2.0 um, of really like uh, shaping a plant-based diet that doesn't have the collateral damage of huge glucose spikes that probably a lot of plant-based people are dealing with right now. So, Dr. Casey's Kitchen, check it out, and um, would love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, so we'll put all the the links and the resources that Dr. Casey just mentioned in the notes of the podcast and in the down below in the YouTube video. I love that. You know, you said you're fairly high carb, but you know. <laughs> you're about 100 you said 100 to 200 grams of carbs per day. That that's in the American standard American diet considered low carb, but to us the keto folks is considered high carb. So let's put that in perspective. So and, and you're doing it in a way that's very unique because you're testing and you've tested which plant-based foods work with your physiology like you said offline versus which plant-based foods do not. Most vegans are not doing this. So you would have If you could get on the Rich Roll podcast, that would be such a fascinating topic because you could definitely educate a lot of his listeners on how to do this the right way. I want to acknowledge you and say, um, I, I love your energy. You've got great energy. Your story is amazing because you went from the the medical world, the conventional medical world, to thinking outside of the box. And you're impact, impacting a lot of lives. And I've been really fascinated with my CGM. And thank you so, so much for sending it my way. And I look forward to doing this again. The Keto Campers are saying, excellent. We live in an extraordinary time. I just signed up for your list. Uh, thank you to both of you. They're showing some heart. So I'm grateful for your research and your energy. And I can't wait to do this again. And thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much. It was so fun to chat with you. And I am so grateful for the work you're doing too, to help people become healthy and creating such culture around it. That's so positive and inspiring. And I just really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Casey. If you want to watch the video version of this interview, head to youtube.com slash KetoCamp and you can check out the interview I show uh, my CGM that I'm wearing during that interview as well. Be sure to check out the links and the resources down below in the podcast notes. Again, if you want to skip the line of 26,000 people currently on that waiting list, To be added to the front of that line as a KetoCamp podcast listener, you can do so. We worked out a special deal for you. Head to levels.link slash KetoCamp. That's camp with a K. We also put a link for that down below in the notes of this podcast. Please leave the show a rating and review if you didn't do so already. When you do take a screenshot, email it to support at KetoCamp.com and I will sign and send you a paperback copy of my best-selling podcast book. That is support at ketocamp.com, United States only. Share this episode with a friend who you believe could get value from this, especially somebody who is type 2 diabetic or type 1 diabetic. A CGM could be a game changer for them. Text to a friend, share it with them, make a difference in somebody else's life today. I want to thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp podcast. You will hear me on the next one.